Um, everyone today, we're fortunate enough to have Dr. Burton Lee with us here today. Um, I, I got to meet Burton for the first time when we were at Pittsburgh together. Many of you have probably met him when he taught the mechanical ventilation course in your summer education block. Um, Bert is now at the NIH and he's the head of medical education and the head of global critical care at the National Institutes of Health. He's going to be talking to us today about medical education and global critical care. So without further ado, Bert, it's all yours. All right, well, thank you, Andy, uh, for, uh, for inviting me. Um, so I am you know, super excited about both of these topics, uh, medical education and global critical care. So, so, I, so I feel very excited to give this talk. Um, as as uh, Andy has said, and as you have noticed, uh, that's actually my job title at, uh, at, at NIH. So I feel like this is an appropriate talk for me to give. Um, my wife sometimes teases me because you know, she says that I'm, I'm very passionate about things that make absolutely no money, uh, which I think is, is unfortunately true. But uh, despite the absence of, uh, of, a, you know, of a lucrative uh, uh, field in these areas, I am, you know, I'm very excited and I feel very fortunate to be uh, involved in these endeavors. So, um, so I want to uh, 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 talk to you about, about combining both of these areas uh, uh, in, in global critical care. And that's what I've been doing uh, for the past 10 years or so in various contexts. And so uh, I'm excited to be able to talk to you about this. And, and obviously I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be really excited to talk to anybody who wants, who wants to, um, you know, who wants to communicate with me individually about your own thoughts or your own plans or anything that we can even collaborate together uh, at the end of this talk. So, um, so I want to take you back about 10 years ago uh, when I, I used to be at, uh, at the hospital center actually in, in DC. Um, and uh, I have had a, an incredibly uh, a kind and generous boss, who's very supportive. Um, and so he actually gave me a, a one-year sabbatical. Uh, and so as of 2010, uh, I actually moved with my whole family to, uh, to Kenya. And that one year actually turned into six years. Um, and there's a big story behind it. And, and I'll just say that it's in part because um, um, global health is much more complicated than I certainly imagined. Uh, and so trying to accomplish things in a short amount of time, uh, which is one year, uh, ended up becoming not really feasible. So to really uh, you know, get things um, going and accomplished and to feel a sense of completion, um, it turned into, into six years. So actually, both of our kids have graduated from high schools in Kenya. And, uh, and when my younger of the two actually graduated from high school and was about to start, uh, start college, I ended up moving back uh, to the US in 2016. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to get a job at the University of Pittsburgh, which is where I met Andy. Um, and um, and it's you know it's an it's, it was an incredible six years. I learned a lot. I grew a lot, and uh, it was really fun for uh, me uh, professionally, but also it was fun for the whole family. Um, and um, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to uh, to continue to be involved in global health, um, uh, even though I'm back in the U.S. mostly now. Uh, and this is um, this is both at the, at the University of Pittsburgh and and now. You know, at the NIH as well. So I want to tell you a little bit about my experience and to and to get our, our discussion going about about global health and critical care in general. 
So let me first of all tell you a little bit about uh, about the hospital where I was at, so that you have a you know a, a sense of what I was doing, and the kind of work that was available there. So I, I spent um, a better part of six years at Kajabi uh, Hospital, which is about an hour and a half outside of Nairobi in Kenya. And, um, and you can see from, you know, like from the satellite view here, that, that this was the hospital uh, where I worked uh, there. And then uh, our house was right there. Uh, it's about maybe about 100 yards or so from the hospital. So I had a very short commute to work. Uh, and then um, just about 100 yards uh, above us uh, on a hill uh, is the school that my wife taught at and, uh, and actually both of our kids went to school. So, so it really was a, you know, really a nice setting uh, for our family to be in. Um, and, and what kind of work did I do there? Well, just briefly, you know, uh, there was the typical clinical care that you might expect uh, that's in the intensive care unit. Um, and uh, I also did a lot of internal medicine besides ICU. Uh, but I was also involved in uh, resource capacity building in, in terms of raising funds and then trying to procure uh, equipment uh, of, um, of various kinds uh, for the hospital. And then I was involved uh, also in resource capacity building. Uh, I taught actually courses in biostatistics and research methodology at one of the local universities there. And then a lot of their trainees actually come and do um, uh, residency programs at the hospital uh, where I was working at, uh, but my primary passion and work was in was in clinician capacity building, and among other things, uh, we ended up starting a program in emergency medicine and critical care medicine for clinical officers. So, so I'll be telling you mainly about that side of my work. Um, so I think, I think graphs like this is probably not a surprise to anybody, but this is a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine from, uh, from 2014, which is charting on the x-axis, the uh, number of, uh, of clinicians per thousand people. Uh, so these are doctors, nurses, and midwives that are available uh, in your region. And on the y-axis is, uh, is the daily adjusted uh, life years that are affected by disease per thousand people. So as you can see, Sub-Saharan Africa is very high in mortality and morbidity from disease, and yet they lack uh, the, the clinicians uh, available. And, and, then, and then those blue uh, circles are the percentage of the world's clinicians that are available. So Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, despite having almost a billion people, uh, you know, only has um, 3% of the resources in terms of clinicians. Um, if you dig a little bit deeper into the physician supply uh, in the U.S., uh, it's uh, about 549 physicians per 100,000. But in much of Sub-Saharan Africa, as you can see, the value is less than, uh, you know, less than 1% of what's available in the U.S. Um, and if you put that into graphical terms, uh, this is a, uh, uh, you know, I think a very uh, um, powerful map from University of Sheffield, which actually, um, you know, redraws the world map according to physician and other clinician supply. And as you can see, Africa is a very, very thin, uh, um, you know, um, uh, famished looking part of the world, uh, especially compared to Europe and, uh, um, and the U.S. 
Um, so, um, so Kenya, of course, is located within Sub-Saharan Africa, and that, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to spend uh, some time there. Um, and now, you know, when people think about global health in general, I think people think about, uh, you know, public health uh, measures, which is obviously clearly important, uh, and primary care. And I think, you know, you can make an argument that those should take priority over critical care. And in fact, when I say, you know, I'm interested in, in global health and critical care, I often get kind of funny looks like that doesn't sound like a very uh, you know, good use of resources or, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't, necessarily, um, it shouldn't necessarily be the priority for uh, where we put our resources, uh, our resources and effort. But um, that may be true at some levels, but uh, but if you look at this, uh, you know, this statement from the World Bank, uh, even back in 2006, uh, they're describing the uh, the potential impact of, of emergency medicine and critical care medicine in terms of outcome for low and middle income countries. And, and the World Bank estimates that actually about 45% of the death and 36% of the, of, the, of the disabilities in low and middle income countries uh, could be impacted with appropriate emergency medicine and critical care uh, medicine. And, and so if you look at more uh, um, um, recent uh, data and articles um, that was uh, actually looking at this issue, especially in, in light of the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, on, on your right is obviously the map of the U.S., which has about 328 uh, million people and almost 100,000 ICU beds. Uh, and so Kenya uh, is actually not a small country. It has 53 million people, you know, roughly one-sixth of the U.S. population. But as you can probably guess, uh, it has only a tiny fraction of ICU beds. At the, at the latest count in, in, in preparation for the COVID pandemic, uh, it only had 150 ICU beds. Uh, what makes it even worse than the ICU bed situation are the number of critical care physicians. Uh, when I went in 2010, uh, some people have told me that actually I was the only uh, uh, fellowship trained um, ICU physician in, uh, in the country, and then perhaps even in, in some of the surrounding areas. Um, as of 2020, uh, there are 12 critical care physicians um, in the country, which makes it very difficult and challenging uh, to deliver effective care for those uh, potentially preventable deaths and, uh, and disabilities. Um, when I left uh, Kenya in 2016, uh, you know, uh, as I said, I took a job at University of Pittsburgh, um, and and just in contrast to what I was dealing with in Kenya, at one hospital alone, uh, which is the main flagship hospital of the uh, University of Pittsburgh system, uh, there were 150 ICU beds, uh, you know, which is uh, incidentally identical to what's available in the entire country of Kenya for 53 million people. And I was one of uh, 126 pulmonary critical care faculty, and that's not even counting the critical care faculty um, that was available um, at the hospital. So obviously, you know, this maldistribution of resources and, uh, is great, but then I would also say that the opportunities to, uh, to make a difference is also great. And so that's what I was really excited to be able to do uh, during my time in Kenya and, and still be able to do now. Uh, 
So, um, so, so looking at this uh, map, um, you know, I should say that uh, there was an effort uh, that's still ongoing. Uh, it's called the EATI or the East African Training Initiative. And uh, many of you may be familiar with that uh, effort as well. And that effort started in 2013, uh, which is a two-year pulmonary critical care uh, medicine fellowship program uh, in the capital of Ethiopia, uh, which is Addis. Um, and so they have uh, had a very successful program there, I think, at, uh, at a place called the, um, the um, Black Lion Hospital in, uh, in Ethiopia. And some of you may know some colleagues who are actually contributing to that effort. Uh, we took a different approach at Kajabi Hospital, um, um, and, and we actually targeted clinical officers rather than physicians. Um, and, and clinical officers are similar to nurse practitioners uh, in the U.S. And the reason for that choice is because um, the clinical officers outnumber physicians in Kenya four to one. And so there's an overabundance, relatively speaking, of clinical officers uh, compared to physicians. And also, uh, you know, I think um, in Kenya, what we have noticed is that there are a um, uh, a large number of highly intelligent, highly motivated clinical officers who, uh, you know, didn't have the opportunity to go to medical school uh, in, in Kenya, but had, you know, but had they been given the opportunity, I think they would be of, uh, on, on equal footing in terms of their, of their clinical uh, skills and intelligence um, and, uh, and work ethic and so forth as, a, as an ICU uh, intent, uh, an ICU intensivist uh, um, might be uh, here in the U.S. And so, so for that reason, uh, we targeted clinical officers, and we started a program called the, uh, the Emergency Critical Care Clinical Officer Program in 2015, and for short, we call it the, uh, the ECHO program. Um, and um, and so, um, so, so, so that's the program that was started in 2015, and now it's still ongoing. And we're very excited about this program because um, it has really uh, um, almost instantly changed the, uh, the availability of people who are comfortable um, treating critically ill patients, uh, um, uh, you, know, you know, with the onset of the, with the start of the program. So let me tell you a little bit about the hospital uh, in case uh, you're wondering about it or you may want to be involved in, in, uh, in this effort. Uh, so the hospital, as I said, is called Kajabi Hospital. Uh, it's a hospital that's actually over 100 years old. Uh, it was founded by, uh, by Christian missionaries uh, at, at like in 19, you know, maybe 10 or so. And it's, it's currently uh, has been nationalized uh, since 1970s. So it's, uh, it's entirely owned and operated by Africans. And it's, uh, it's run by the Africa Inland Church, which I believe is the largest uh, denomination uh, of uh, Protestants in East Africa. And, um, and the current uh, leadership uh, is entirely Kenyan, uh, including the CEO and the board. Uh, there are roughly 30 full-time physicians um, uh, there now. Uh, it changes from, um, you know, I think from one year to the, to the next, but half are Kenyans and, uh, and then half are still uh, expatriate missionaries, uh, doctors, or other clinical um, uh, um, um, doctors from U.S., Canada, uh, Australia, um, and so forth. 
And there's a constant stream of visiting clinicians and trainees from high income countries. Uh, you know, we've had in any given month, I would say there's probably maybe from five to 10 um, uh, visiting medical students, residents, um, and, um, and, and then fully trained clinicians uh, from these countries. Um, while, uh, actually, while I was there, I should, I should point out that we had uh, uh, two residents uh, from University of Maryland, actually, um, and, uh, and as well as many other institutions, including Hospital Center and the NIH. Um, and while I was in Pittsburgh, uh, we were able to send three medical students from, uh, from there and one attending to, uh, to Kajabi Medical Center. Uh, from Pittsburgh as well. So there's uh, a constant stream of visiting clinicians uh, and trainees. Uh, as far as the hospital itself, uh, in terms of medical education, there is a very extensive training program already. Um, and so one of them is a, uh, is a large uh, internship program. And the system in Kenya is a little different from what you might think in, in, the, uh, in the US. It's closer to the system in, in the UK where it's a six year medical school uh, program. And, and at the end of that one year, uh, I'm sorry, end of those six years, you do a one year training program in, 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 um, as a medical officer. So it's basically a PGY one level in our system. And they do a rotating internship of three months of pediatrics, three months of surgery, three months of medicine, and three months of OBGYN. And then, and then traditionally, that's where their training stopped. And, and although this is um, rapidly changing, um, you know, often then you were expected to go into community and take care of anything from C-sections to appendectomies to treating HIV um, um, and delivering babies and taking care of, of, of uh, neonates and so forth. Um, and then beyond that, uh, um, the Kajabi Hospital has had uh, residency programs in family medicine, surgery, orthopedics, uh, neurosurgery, uh, pediatric surgery, and it just recently added a program in plastic surgery, and it is about to start a program in anesthesia residency. Uh, and then there's a large um, training um, program for nurse anesthesia. Uh, which has been going on for over 10 years, uh, I believe. And then our program, which is the ECHO program for emergency and critical care, uh, which started in 2015. So a large number of programs and therefore large, uh, you know, uh, opportunities uh, for us to collaborate. Um, and on the second floor of this, uh, of this building in, in Blue Arrow there, uh, that's our intensive care unit. So let me give you just just some pictures of that so you know what that looks like. Um, it's, uh, it's not a large ICU. There's five ICU beds and 12 step-down beds, so 17 beds that can, that can accommodate patients on vasopressors and, and then five that can accommodate uh, mechanically ventilated patients. Um, and uh, the kind of equipment that's available is mostly donated equipment, um, but we have we do have a CT scanner, uh, and then uh, like like ultrasound machines, and, and then uh, and then mechanical ventilators. So a lot of what I was doing is not that different from what I was doing uh, before, which is to do a lot of teaching and to set up curriculum. So here's an example of the ICU curriculum for Kajabi Hospital, uh, which is on Google Drive. Uh, mainly because Google Drive is free and it's uh, and it's widely accessible, um, and 
you know, there would be the similar kind of things that, that you've seen if you've done the event course about, you know, about evidence-based summaries of the various topics, uh, and then the pre-lecture questions, and then we would do uh, interactive lectures. Uh, the picture on the left, uh, you might recognize this from a few years ago of the, of the uh, DC Baltimore uh, summer education blocks where, where people are, are working in small groups for the event course. Uh, and then on the right, our, our African trainees, you know, doing essentially the same kind of interactive education um, and training. Um, the, uh, even before uh, me coming to the NIH, actually, uh, Henry Masur from NIH was very generous and actually gave uh, a small um, a stipend for me to have that satellite dish up on top, which allowed us to have um, a, a reasonable um, uh, uh, Wi-Fi and internet access. Uh, and uh, using that, um, I'm sorry, wrong way, uh, using that, I was able to, uh, you know, get other grants and to provide our ECHO trainees with, um, with tablets that they can connect to the internet, do literature searches, and then put our uh, our actual curriculum online, and then and then they can access it. and And it turns out something something simple and mundane, like paper and ink for a printer, is actually quite expensive in in the Kenyan context. And so it was actually you know uh, more efficient uh, and actually cheaper to give them uh, uh, these. Uh, uh, um, um, Samsung tablets and then access their, their material online. Um, even the American Thoracic Society actually helped, uh, you know, this, uh, they used to have a program called the Global Scholars Program, which unfortunately no longer is active, but they were active in those countries that are outlined in blue. Uh, and, the, and the Kenyan side of that uh, is, uh, you know, was our hospital. Um, and so here is a bunch of the of the uh, officers as well as nurses uh, and other physicians in internal medicine and so forth who would who would congregate in our um, in our house because we were the ones with the best uh, internet access um, and then uh, eventually we were able to get uh, formal recognition from the Kenyan government and the Ministry of Health to actually certify this program as being a nationally recognized program. And to our knowledge, uh, the ECHO program is the first of its kind in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so we're very excited about that. Um, we have um, now graduated four classes as of 2020 since starting in 2015. And so we have had 24 ECHO officers uh, who have completed the program. And some of the things that, that's been very exciting for me personally is that, uh, is that um, despite the lure from uh, other hospitals around the country, uh, especially from Nairobi, to hire uh, our graduates at a very high salary, um, you know, like for that economy, you know, like all of the ones that we have felt, you know, could be um, uh, leaders uh, and actually faculty for the program, uh, you know, have chosen to stay so far, and they are now have taken over, you know, all the teaching and and much of the of the administration of the program, um, and so it, it is very much a self-sufficient uh, uh, process now. Even though I left in 2016, um, and um, and I. I think uh, 22 of the officers uh, out of the 24 have, uh, are working in rural areas and, and only two are currently working in Nairobi where there is a uh, less of a shortage for clinicians obviously in the, in the capital city. 
Um, and, and, and then just to give you, uh, you know, some anecdotes, uh, uh, there was a recent uh, newspaper article in the major um, national paper called the Daily Nation uh, in, uh, in August of this year, which was a story about COVID pandemic and, and, and how it's impacting um, um, Kenya as a whole. Uh, they interviewed actually uh, eight clinicians and three of the eight were actually our ECHO uh, officers who are, who are the alumni of the ECHO program. And so we're, we're very proud of, uh, of the impact that's already made already uh, in a short time. So I wanna highlight a few challenges and lessons that we've learned from this, uh, because I think they may be of interest to you as you think about about global health um, and critical care. It is by no means uh, you know, comprehensive, but I think it might just give you some, some things to think about. So, so one of the lessons that I learned right away is, is the fact that, uh, that in much of the world, there are no respiratory therapists. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you know, at least in the US, there were many issues that I never had to think about uh, because the respiratory therapists are often you know, quite excellent and they take care of things for you, uh, but uh, that wasn't the case. So, 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 so when I first started to work at Kajabi Hospital, I would have to run down the hill maybe every other day because uh, their endotracheal tube would get clogged. And, and, and so here's a picture of somebody who actually ripped out his own endotracheal tube with a, with a cuff inflated uh, because it was completely obstructed and he couldn't breathe. And, and of course, fortunately, this person was strong enough and awake enough to do that on, you know, on his own. And, it, and, and, and I did that maybe for about two weeks every other day, roughly. And then it finally dawned on me the reason why this is happening, and this happens, you know, relatively uh, um, uh, rarely in the U.S., is because uh, there was nobody actually providing effective um, humidification for the um, like for the ventilator. So it, it's just an example of of how, you know, the things that we take for granted in the U.S. is not automatic, uh, and so. So we had to do a lot of training. I mean, actually, number one, I, I should say, I had to train myself and, and then talk to people who are, uh, who are respiratory therapists in the US to kind of get further uh, details on, on, on how to do this, you know, what the equipment, uh, you know, uh, we would ordinarily need. And then of course, a lot of it, you know, may or may not be available in, um, uh, in the country. So we'd have to sort of figure out some creative ways to meet um, you know, like the things that were lacking. And so there's a lot that I had to learn uh, well beyond the stuff that I was doing or stuff that I'd been trained in. Um, I, on a very similar level, uh, there is not a you know, very robust uh, system for biomed and, and, uh, and, uh, and equipment uh, maintenance. A lot of the equipment that we're using had been donated. And, and so some were in good, good condition, but that oftentimes even if they were, they would quickly you know, malfunction in a, in a matter of a few weeks or a few months uh, because of, um, of the difficulty in, um, in actually performing, you know, like the routine maintenance and things like that. So here's just one example of a ventilator, which is a, which is, which is a servo ventilator um, uh, made by Siemens, uh, and it's called a 900C ventilator. And so if you look at the knob, it's pointing toward um, the, this black dot, you know, here, or this black arrow here, is pointing to the inspiratory tidal volume. And if you set this, let's say at 400 cc's, and we think that's about six cc's per kilogram, the problem is 
if you put this on the expiratory tidal volume, this is what it's reading. And so obviously they both can't be true um, on a constant basis, uh, but that's what they would have read. So we really had no idea how accurate a lot of these machines were. And we had to go through, you know, just an extensive, uh, uh, you know, retraining ourselves and to try to figure out what's inside of these boxes. So, um, so you know, yeah, it was not infrequent, especially early on, to grab a screwdriver and to take off the screws that, you know, that you see there and then see what's inside, uh, which was not part of my normal, uh, normal uh, workflow uh, in the U.S. Um, something um, that might surprise some of you uh, and might not surprise others, but you know, but uh, but is is the fact that actually cost benefit analysis and looking at what we should do and should not do in global health context wasn't as straightforward as I'd imagined. So so here's the portion that's probably not that surprising to you, which is you know if you look at some some data from the Oral Bank, um, um, and we look at how much it costs to care for a mechanically ventilated patient, uh, um, patient uh, at Kajabi Hospital, it was approximately 90 US dollars per day, which sounds like a great deal because I'm sure in, in most of our institutions, you know, it's in the thousands of dollars per day, not $90 per day. But, but of course the problem is, you know, it's relative to your economy. So uh, in, in much of the, of the higher income countries like Japan, UK and the US, that's the annual expenditure for healthcare, um, you know, uh, uh, with the U.S. being roughly double of other high-income countries. Uh, but in Kenya and Uganda, it's in the order of $45 per year. And so then if you say you're going to take care of a mechanically ventilated patient uh, one day, that's already twice the annual expenditure. And this is in the context where, like many of the people, had an average um, salary of about two to five dollars per day. So ninety dollars is quite cheap, but it's very expensive by by the local standards. So so you know, so all of that to say, uh, which is not a surprise to anybody, is that we have to be very very careful about what we would choose to do and maybe not do, and to think of cheaper substitutes whenever possible. Um, so, so here is a like a hard lesson or a, or an interesting lesson that might be paradoxical in some ways. So, if you think about an intervention, let's say like uh, like um, like dopamine or norepinephrine, for example, which are not things that are considered very expensive in the U.S. economy, but norepinephrine is considered very very expensive. So, so this is just a hypothetical example to illustrate the point. But let's say you have a standard treatment and and you're in this black dot in the cost benefit scheme here so and 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 let's say that if you were to institute this particular intervention for a hypothetical illness it would cost ten dollars every time you gave it uh, so ten dollars per person and you would you would expect to cure let's say half the people so out of 200 people 100 would benefit from this choice so if you look at this quadrant, you know, this should be fairly self-explanatory, but if you look at this here and you say, well, if something is in this side, this big black box side of this cost benefit curve, well, it looks like it's costing more and benefit is less compared to where you were at baseline, which is this black dot. Um, so more cost and less benefit. 
So the decision from our point of view wouldn't be that complicated. You say, well, it's probably not something that we would do, at least not routinely, because it costs more and you get less benefit. So in contrast, if you, if you look at something in, in this yellow box, you're getting more benefit and less cost. So that's fairly easy. And you say, okay, well, so I think, you know, you know uh, in most cases, that sounds like a logical choice. And then the other two quadrants, of course, here and here, it's again uh, uh, more difficult because you know something may cost less, but you get less benefit, or it may cost more, but you get more benefit. So the decision has to be individualized and becomes more complex. So, so having set up this, you know, you know, the scheme here, if you think about a comparison of a new treatment that now is a little bit more expensive, about 20% more expensive but it's also more effective. So you might cure 110 people out of 200, which is 55% instead of 50%, but it costs a little bit more. So then the question is, you know, uh, you know where does that stand in this scheme of cost benefit analysis? And so uh, if you look at something that costs more, uh, but is also more beneficial, I think on first pass, uh, you know, you would think it would belong in this box over here, uh, which is, you know, more cost and but more benefit. Um, and so a lot of people just, if you're given this option, would just on first pass think, you know, this is in the, um, in the A category there uh, among the possible dots. But but what we didn't anticipate under these kind of analogies is that is the is the fact that oftentimes there is a fixed budget. So 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 like oftentimes some donor or some church or some individual say, here's some money, we want you to help with you know with diabetes care or HIV care and so forth. And so and then of course we had an overabundance of patients who could benefit from that particular um, uh, therapy. So if you had in, in theory 400 potential patients in a, in a limited um, amount of money, let's say, let's say $2,400, if you think about the standard treatment versus new treatment, it's actually quite different. So for example, if you choose the standard treatment versus new treatment and think about the people that you could treat and the cure rate, it becomes very interesting. Because with standard treatment, since it costs $10 and you have $2,400, you could treat more people, which is 240 people. But with new treatment being more expensive at $12, you could only treat 200 people. And if you do the math, actually, the, the number of people who would benefit is actually goes down, even though it's more effective with a new treatment. So, so, uh, so these are not uncommon situations for us where we have to really think carefully about about uh, about choosing to use one particular drug or uh, or another. Um, another major uh, lesson and challenge is is the fact that the literature from high income countries do not necessarily translate into low income countries or low and middle income countries. So I think you are familiar with uh, with uh, all of this literature, but just to kind of uh, put it in context of our discussion here. Uh, you're you're very familiar with the Manu Rivers paper, which has now been you know, essentially discredited uh, for the most part, and is a study from 2001, and it had a number of issues, and among them was the fact that you know we didn't used to register randomized controlled trials uh, until more recently, and it was a fairly small study of 263 patients, you know, a, a single center study, and that the, many of the authors and investigators had had a had a strong um, 
connection to industry. So there is a potential profit motive in, in coming up and, um, and actually publishing this kind of research. Um, and, but despite that, at, at, at 2001, as you know, the recommendation was given you know, worldwide really to resuscitate very uh, aggressively to try to achieve these endpoints. And, um, and this pressure you know, wasn't just in the US or, or, or Europe and Japan, it, it, it went everywhere, including Sub-Saharan Africa. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of anxiety about maybe inappropriately uh, you know, resuscitating people in Sub-Saharan Africa. And there was a lot of guilt, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of educational campaigns um, and so forth. But, but as you may be aware, there was a trial in 2011 called the FEAST trial. And now this was a study uh, that was done among uh, African ch children, so not adults, but, but in children, but a much higher quality study uh, in terms of it being registered, you know, far more patients, multi-center, and no real conflict of interest in this particular study that we could tell. And this study compared you know, uh, no bolus of fluids versus albumin bolus versus a crystalloid bolus. And to everyone's surprise, there was a higher mortality uh, with either kinds of boluses. And then uh, people have tried to look at this to look for subgroups to say, and to look for other explanations. And some people explain this away to say, well, this is Africa. Maybe there's more, you know, uh, there's more malnutrition. Maybe there's lower albumin levels and so forth. And uh, this is children anyway. And this, you know, is probably not relevant to the U.S. And other people said, well, you know, if you if you look at it, you know, you know, I think the quality of the of the data is pretty good, so it should be strongly considered. Uh, and then ultimately, as we know, there were three trials, uh, you know, three big trials. Uh, one of which was a process trial, which it's, which essentially said, you know, uh, you know, this kind of aggressive resuscitation may or may not be of true benefit as we had once thought. Um, and then. Uh, more recently, uh, uh, in JAMA in 2017, um, uh, a study by Andrews and some investigators from Vanderbilt uh, looked at a, um, uh, a randomized study comparing a protocolized resuscitation versus usual care, because usual care in many sub-Saharan uh, African contexts meant you know, not the same kind of fluids or, or vasopressor used because of limited resources and so forth. Uh, but in comparing a more aggressive resuscitation versus minimal use of fluids and, and impressors, they were able to, uh, you know, show that uh, that the lactate levels fell faster with a protocol, uh, you know, with a more aggressive fluids and more aggressive vasopressor use. Uh, but uh, they found uh, that they actually had worse outcome, uh, higher mortality, and more respiratory compromise in, in terms of tachypnea and oxygen saturations. So again, you know, this is a single center study from Zambia, and, um, but, but, but I think over and over again, it, it seems to show that we cannot necessarily adopt um, the literature from high income countries and just basically copy and paste into the developing world. Um, and so it really stresses the need for a more careful analysis of the literature in the global health context and also at a, um, you know, at a, a more fundamental level that, that there's a greater need to actually have research done and also to support the research efforts of those who are actually working and living in, uh, in low and middle income countries.
the latest example of this, uh, to my knowledge, is the one by Hernandez, which is a similar kind of a study looking at randomized trials of septic shock patients, uh, but now in Latin America, and they are comparing a fairly inexpensive way to guide resuscitation, which is capillary refill time, uh, versus, again, in the U.S., lactate is nothing in terms of cost or availability. Uh, at Kajabi Hospital, we didn't have lactate. And so, and so the question is, should we try to you know, actually buy equipment and try to maintain it with all the biomed uh, limitations and so forth? And this study was a nice study comparing two different strategies. And, uh, and as, you're, as you're aware, actually, there was no improvement in mortality having a lactate-based uh, resuscitation strategy. Um, um, and so again, it, it just underscores that there, there needs to be um, uh, randomized studies done in low and middle income countries and also ones that really help uh, um, um, the low and middle income countries to make appropriate choices in terms of technology. So um, I want to finish by just giving you at least what we're working on now and what I'm hoping to do uh, in, the, in the next few years. And, uh, and some of this, uh, you know, uh, because of the pandemic has given us some time to think and, and, and uh, we've been having some, uh, some time to meet over Zoom and this is still in the preliminary stages, but I'd love to get your thoughts on this and to see if anybody on the University of Maryland side would want to join us. So, as I said, you know, uh, um, Kajabi Hospital is the place that I've had the most amount of experience so far, but there are obviously many, many uh, uh, hospitals around the world uh, that uh, is trying to do uh, intensive care and, uh, and global um, um, critical care uh, in the appropriate way. So we have um, so far um, a preliminary uh, agreement uh, and a preliminary commitment, actually, in fact, uh, from uh, several institutions. Uh, so we have uh, Beth Riviello from, uh, from Beth Israel uh, Deaconess and Harvard. Uh, we have uh, John Park from Mayo Clinic uh, and, um, and then Christina Rudd from, um, from UPMC. And then Cameron DeSulian, who was actually at Pittsburgh, but uh, he, he also moved um, just this summer uh, to, uh, to Houston uh, to be a Texas Texas Children's Hospital, um, and uh, and we have uh, you know have a strong interest in global health. Uh, most of us have spent significant amount of time in uh, in uh, low and middle in income countries, um, and our are actively doing research in low and middle income countries, and we have um, you know formed a a consortium, um, and we're interested in supporting the, uh, you know, uh, what's been started at Kajabi Hospital. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to um, set up this multi-institutional uh, cons um, consortium so that we can set up uh, and support clinical care. So we're envisioning uh, a rotation for ICU fellows to spend maybe a month in their senior year after they've done their you know, routine training uh, in the US uh, to help with clinical care there. Um, and also an opportunity for uh, ICU attendings. Uh, I think all, all of us are excited about uh, spending something like two weeks uh, a year ourselves to kind of be an ongoing presence uh, and to 
and to be a liaison between our consortium and, and the needs and activities um, at Kajabi Hospital um, in Kenya. Um, and then we're also in interested in capacity building, as we, we mentioned, there are a number of, uh, of training programs. Uh, so we want to be an ongoing support for the ECHO program. There's also talk about eventually starting a, um, a physician training program, which is similar to the one that's been happening in Ethiopia. Uh, and then also um, um, capacity building in terms of research. Uh, and that would include uh, trying to collect data uh, and to establish an, a database for us to collaborate together with, uh, with the Kenyan physicians in doing research. Um, uh, my former boss in University of Pittsburgh is actually very interested in, um, in developing a potentially some kind of a, of a biorepository even. Uh, and so we're exploring about the possibility of collecting blood specimens and, and other specimens for that kind of research, uh, and, and then also to, um, to mentor and encourage the Kenyan physicians so that they can do their own research, especially in terms of the clinical outcomes um, and, uh, um, and, that, and that type of uh, database-based uh, uh, research. Um, probably one of our, our big impetus for this and, and the reason why we're so excited is because we're also trying to um, make sure that when our fellows from the US, let's say go there, uh, wanna have a supervision by US board certified attendings so that you, you can get proper um, credit from an ACGME point of view if you're rotating over there. Uh, but also we wanna standardize and establish best practices for how a US institution should interact with a um, a hospital in low and middle income countries. Um, I, I can tell you much more about it if any, anyone's in, interested, but I think uh, it's fair to say that not every interaction uh, between a, a high income country and a low middle income country has been for the benefit of the low middle income countries. And there's been some very bad examples of that kind of interaction. So we wanna make sure that we do this in a way that is mutually beneficial. Um, and so as part of that is uh, we have actually this gentleman here that I haven't talked about yet, uh, Jason Brotherton, who uh, is a, uh, who's American, and he is a med-peds uh, doctor who had been working in Sub-Saharan Africa for about five years already. And he actually is uh, doing his uh, fellowship at Pitt uh, in the critical care medicine side. So he's currently a first year. And the current agreement is that he's gonna spend uh, this year training and then he's gonna go back to Kenya uh, to, be, um, to finish out his uh, research training in Kenya. And, and then and the Christina Rudd is, gonna, is actually his research mentor and then they're gonna work on research projects together. And the goal is that at the end of his fellowship, which should be in, in, in about two years from now, uh, he's gonna be a, um, on faculty at Pitt and then he will be able to be the liaison between this consortium and, um, and Kajabi Hospital. So we're in the process of building this consortium, trying to still you know, you know, work out some of the conditions and goals and to figure out you know, who's interested and who can make this kind of commitment and, and so forth. But I'm really excited about, about the potential that this consortium has. 
Um, and then, um, you know, it's still early, so I won't establish any names or anything like that in this forum, but, but there are some other, uh, other partners uh, who might, might want to join us and, uh, you know, including the one uh, that the Eros pointed to, which is, which is in Brazil. So, so we hope that, uh, that the more, uh, more anemic looking places in the world in terms of critical care and, uh, uh, and ICU can be made much more uh, robust through a consortium like this. Um, I think this is my last slide, but, uh, but, but just a few final thoughts. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, my wife often jokes that I am passionate about things uh, that make essentially no money, uh, which is medical education and global critical care. And I think that's hard to argue with that, and I think that is true. Uh, but at the same time, I would also say that, that I feel incredibly privileged that I get to do these things because they have also been some of the most, most uh, fun and, and, and fulfilling parts of my career has been as a medical educator and, and, and also being involved in, in, uh, in global health. And I think uh, I, I um, you, know, you know, right now, that's my, my, my major part of my job is in those areas. And I feel very, very fortunate that I'm actually getting paid to do what I love to do. So I hope that uh, that will spark some interest in some of the people in the audience. And if anybody uh, has any questions or if anybody wants to talk to me or even meet, uh, you know, over coffee or something like that, I'd be more than happy to do that. Okay, so thank you very much.